Welcome, everyone, to the OFD podcast. I am your host, Joshua Voles, site manager at OneFootDown.com. And with me, as always, is uh, editor Jude Seymour. Jude, what's, Jude, Jude, what's up tonight? <laughs> I'm very excited about our guest tonight. Yeah, exactly. We have a special guest for you, for everyone tonight, uh, Jerry Barca, uh, producer for the new uh, film Hesburgh about uh, everyone's favorite Notre Dame president, Father Ted, Father Theodore Hesburgh. Jerry, how you doing? We, we know that you're uh, taking some time out tonight traveling. How you doing? We're doing great. Thank you so much. I, I apologize if the sound isn't working. We've been, you know, all over the country promoting the film uh, and we're actually in transit. Had a big day in New York City today. Uh, PBS NewsHour, you might see our, our great director, Pat Creeden, on there. We, we did a spot from the New York Stock Exchange on Cheddar. They think is something for all the young people. They think that's cool <laughs> or something. Um, and uh, WNBC in New York. So we're actually headed to Washington, D.C. because we have a packed press day in the nation's capital to talk about Hesburg and Father Ted's story. So oh, I that's apologize for the sound, but we're, we're doing the work we got to do. Hey, we're we are uh, we are not sound people. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not sure if you listened to the podcast before, but uh, we're what you might call amateurs. So <laughs> so no worries at all. All right, Jerry. Hey, you know this is uh, when I, when I first saw the preview, uh, saw this come up online. I just I got just ridiculously excited. Um, I love uh, like, you know, like ESPN 30 for 30s, and you know I, I'm a big documentary buff period. Uh, and so seeing this, uh, come up, I got super excited. So tell, you know, tell me how did this project start off? Like what, how did this thing, uh, you know, go from a spark into a fire? Well, you know, it's really Pat Creeden, ESPN, Pat and I came together and sort of, uh, really what was a forced marriage that worked out really well, uh, with ESPN and the 30 for 30 Catholics versus comics. We didn't know each other before then. And, you know, I, I, I certainly hope a lot of your listeners have seen Catholics versus Convicts. I'm sure most um, of them. <laughs> yeah, may, hopefully a couple times. Hopefully it's still planted in the GBR there uh, for that crowd. Um, but, you know, part of that story, as you know, is a return for Pat to his roots at Notre Dame. And while we were making that, he had a close family friend that said, you know what your next story should be? And any writer, any storyteller hears this all the time. You know, my uncle every Christmas is telling me I should do a story about the, the litter on the New Jersey Turnpike. Right? I haven't done that yet. And, and I, I think that one's still in the queue pretty far down. But, you know, so, we, you know, we hear this stuff all the time. And, you know, the gentleman, the, the friend that said this to Pat said, you know, I know you hear this stuff all the time, but I really think you should think about Hesburgh. And I think for Pat, it was a return to his roots of Notre Dame. He's a third generation uh, Domer, his father passed about 10 weeks after uh, Father Hesburgh passed away. And then he was back on Notre Dame's campus within weeks of that after ESPN contacted him after his father passed. And I think it just sort of came together that this was something to do. And, uh, and he mentioned it to Pat Eilers, the walk-on football player uh, that's featured in Catholics First Comics, who scores the the go-ahead touchdown in the in that game for the Irish. And Eilers, when he heard the idea, he said, you want to do that? I'll go get the funding. It's done. Consider it oh, done. Wow. And, uh, that's and, and that's, you know, we made the film independently of the university. 
Um, we have a great working relationship with them, but all of the editorial decisions of what's in the film, what's not in the film, that that exists with Pat and O'Malley Creedon Productions and the filmmaking team. And we didn't take any money from the from the university, nor would we. And no money from the film goes back to the university. Um, we are we are giving all the profit to charities, so people know. Uh, one is Andean Health. Uh, which supports the Hesburgh Hospital in Ecuador, and the other is the Holy Cross House, where Father Ted lived out his final days. Wow. That's excellent. That's that, um, that's, a, that's, an, that's just an amazing, just kind of a culmination of events. You know, it just it all comes out. And the reason, I mean, what really makes it so special is, and I'll let I'll let uh, Jude get into many more of the specifics here in a minute. But I, I, I want to ask you this, you know just what you just said about how this all came together like that, it all just seems so perfect because of who Father Hesburgh was and really the political climate, the social climate, the economic climate that we live in today, you know, this country just feels so divided that, you know, a story about Father Ted who was, you know, if anything, he just, he was someone who could bring everybody together to, to try to tackle a problem to try to to make something better, I mean, does that how, how much does that cross your mind? I mean, you you just kind of this just kind of came about, but I mean, honestly, I, I couldn't think of a better time for a movie uh, with that kind of message, uh, you know, to come across the eyes of Americans. Well, you're you're on point, and I will tell you this: when we started this, we knew it would be a very steep climb to make this film and to execute it our aim was always to tell a story for the widest possible audience. And we knew we were telling this American story and we, we thought while we were making it, well, this is a historic story. And then as things evolved in our own country and, and continue to do so in the manner in which you described in the division and in the yelling at each other, uh, rather than listening, we realized that this story is as timely as ever. I mean, that's the thing. Sure, Father Ted uh, sort of was in a sweet spot from the 50s through the 70s and, and into the 80s and even a little bit in the, the 90s there. But this film and the message and the themes and the leadership that you see in it are as timely today as they were back then. Absolutely. I, I, that's the, the thing that had been across my mind pretty much this entire time leading up uh, to get a chance to talk to you has, has been on the, on those, uh, those lines. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I don't want to sound cheesy, but you know, thank you, you know, that, you know, thank you to you and Pat, you know, for putting this out there, because if, if there's people out there and I know there are that are more, more of a even mind that is, is willing to listen to other sides and, and come up with solutions rather than just yell at each other. Uh, I am definitely one of those people. So, um, you know, like I said, without sounding too cheesy, I really appreciate all the hard work and uh, the dedication and time you guys have put into making something like this. Well, thanks. That's very kind of you. Really appreciate it. Jerry, I just want to pull the thread on this a, a little bit that we just talked about. Um, I think Pat and the, the vision for the film um, was intentionally not going to look insular to what was happening just on Notre Dame's campus, but looking um, kind of out into the world the way that the Hesburgh did. He wasn't, he was, he was his president on his campus, but he was also 
um, serving missions and serving on communities and uh, or commissions and stuff like that. So um, there was kind of a, it seemed like a real uh, specific uh, plan of attack from Pat and from all the people putting together this film that this is not a Notre Dame story. It's a American story. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely it. We made, we made a Notre Dame story and they put it on ESPN and we're real happy with that. And, and we love that film, but this was never, we were never going to do a Notre Dame story with this. It just wasn't the way we were going to go about it. Yeah. That would seem too small. Wouldn't it for the, for the person that, I mean, yeah. I, they're not downgrading Notre Dame at all, but I mean, it's just, that's too small of a part of his story. Yeah, it's just that's not who he was. I mean, he was the Notre Dame president. And believe me, I will tell you this. If you're in any way associated with the University of Notre Dame, I I think you come away from this film with nothing but the feeling immensely proud of being associated with the university. And at the same time, we did have to go away from campus, you know, and we do that on purpose. I mean, there's major parts of the film that happen in Washington, D.C., in Alabama, um, you know, these are major things, major places he left to go make a difference. I mean, here's a guy who was trying to deal with civil rights, and he wasn't doing it from an ivory tower. He went down and talked to the people about voter suppression, talked to those who were suppressed. And he was threatened by George Wallace that he would be thrown in jail if, if Hesburgh and the Civil Rights Commission even stepped foot in Alabama. Um, they went to Mississippi, you know, he, he took them away to land of lakes, Wisconsin, you know, when, when things weren't going well and they couldn't stay anywhere. I mean, they, they, at one point weren't even allowed to stay in a military barracks because the commissioners had people who were black there and Eisenhower had to step in. I mean, this is where our country was back then. And they were in Louisiana at one point. They're disgruntled. They're not getting along with each other as a commission. They're charged with coming up with some sort of solution to civil rights in the United States of America. And Hesburgh contacts a, a donor at Notre Dame, gets a private plane and flies him up to Land Lakes, And he puts segregationists in the same boat as Yankees and they become fishermen together. And that night over dinner, they agree on almost unanim- unanimously on 11 parts um, of the civil of what would eventually become the Civil Rights Act in 1964. I mean, that that's the kind of guy he was. And and that story needs to be told. Uh, so that's just one example of, of who he was away from campus and, and away from Notre Dame. And, and in doing this, let's keep in mind, I mean, he was entrepreneurial. He wanted Notre Dame to be the best. And when he's out there having relationships with the Pope, having relationships with U.S. presidents, he is also bolstering the university. So it did serve Notre Dame, but he lived this life away from campus that was was globally impactful. It's hard. It's really hard to believe that this is the same man that had Charlie Weiss knocking on his door, worried about the football program. <laughs> <laughs> you have all you have all these other issues going on in your in your life and in your world. And you got uh, you got Chuck out there uh, really concerned about uh, not the passing game. I mean, he let all students, uh, yeah. you know, come and visit him. I, I think that's a, I mean, it's funny. We'll be places. Everybody has a father Pat story. 
we're getting them emailed to us probably a half dozen a day. I mean, Father Pat, Father Ted. <laughs> Everybody has a Father Ted story. Um, and, and we do. We get them emailed to us all the time. And, you know, whether it was I got to drive him back from an event and he asked just if we could stop the car in front of the grotto and say a prayer. And, and these people, everyone remembers it with such meaning. You know, whether it was uh, a young man who was 16 years old serving mass for him and saying, what am I doing serving mass? And they had this mass in their home in, in, in Minnesota. And he's 16 years old. Why am I an altar boy? And, you know, and then he, he sees that it's Hesburgh. And, and then four years later, he sees Hesburgh walking on the campus at Notre Dame and Hesburgh remembered him. You know? Wow. I mean, everybody, I'm telling you these stories, they don't stop. I mean, I, there's a woman who is uh, a waitress at the Morris Inn. And she talked about how Father Ted came in the day she had to put her dog down and how meaningful it was that he gave her a blessing the day that she had to put her dog down. I mean, wow. I, the, the, you know, you want to go from standing up to Richard Nixon to blessing somebody the day they had to put their dog down. I mean, that, that is he lived a life that was of service to people and uh, in service of what he thought was right. And what would serve all God's children. And that's what we tried to capture in the film. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things is this film helped me realize was how much I took Father Ted's story for granted. Um, as an undergraduate, I, I, I got to be honest with you, I don't have a Father Ted story. There is, I, I, I stood in the same room as him a couple of times, but there was no, um, there's no story to email to a producer to tell him how much he impacted my life. At the same time, watching this film, helped me um, put this into a greater context that that's what I thought I knew was so much greater. And the thing that I left impressed by was um, he just, I don't know if this is the way that you guys presented it or just the way it, it turned out, but he just didn't make a misstep. He, every time there was a critical juncture where he had to pick between right and wrong and history was going to judge him, he picked the right direction. I, it was just astounding to me. Well, I, I think I'll tell you one thing is I don't and, and in fact, I appreciate what you said. Not everybody agrees with you, you know, that he, he made the right decision everywhere. That's for sure. Not everyone agrees. But what I will say is one thing we found out from his brother, Jim, is that he never had a sleepless night. Yeah. So he had the resolve and really, I think, guided by faith to make the tough call and move forward. And just keep moving forward and move on to the next biggest issue he was going to face. So I, I think that and I, I really think it's because he was so rooted in his faith. And we were talking to Cardinal Dolan today, the Archbishop of New York. And, you know, he talked about obedience and that Hesburgh, you know, it was who Hesburgh was, was a guy who gave himself over to his vow of obedience. And I, and I link that to my answer to you now and that he gave himself, he was obedient to his faith. He was here to serve. He was here to be a priest. He was here to serve all of God's people. And I mean, everything the, was going to be filtered through that. And he was yeah. obedient to that. And, and the other thing that struck me was, and the, this word I kept coming back to, it was fearless or fearlessness. Uh, this idea that the Vatican would call him and sit, put their thumb on the publication of a book and say, no. And he'd say, I'm sorry, 
you know, this kind of speech belongs on my campus and I'm going to widely distrib distribute it, even though it's going to cause some friction between you guys and, and us. I, I just, I found that amazing that, that he didn't let, he, there was no temerity in, in his action. He, and I, I guess maybe it speaks back to the not having the sleepless night. When he picked a direction, he picked it and stuck with it, which was, I think, amazing to me. Wait a second. I got to go. I got to get my pocket dictionary for temerity. I hope so. <laughs> I, I, but here, here's the thing. I think if we today in 2019, we look at Father Ted and it's like, mama, there goes that man again. You know what I mean? He's like we could call him like, wow, that's one bad dude, you know. But I think that that is our uh, a definite view that, that we can put on him with this fearlessness and this courage. But I think what makes him unique is I don't think Ted Hesburgh said I'm fearless. I think it goes back to somebody who said their the, the breviary, their, their daily prayers as a priest every day, who said mass nearly every day of his life and made sure he said mass. Um you know, was constantly stopping at the grotto to say the Hail Mary. I really think it was faith because, you know, think about that. Fear probably disappears when you realize God is with you and you're serving God, right? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be a natural outcome of that? And I yeah. think he was way more in touch with that. I'll tell you, he's way more in touch with that than I am <laughs> and probably both of us are. You know, I'd like Absolutely. to be that. I would aspire to be that. But, you know, yeah. so I think that's what it comes back to. And, yes. But I do think there's this sort of, you know, there's a powerful nature to him that we can all view him with. But I'm not, I don't think he walked around thinking that, you know, no, which and, is, is something, it's, it's like a deeper level or something. And I think that's evident. There's an interview in the film, uh, I think it's with Mike Wallace, and, and Wallace says to him something to the effect of like, you know, well, you're considered to be the most powerful man or, you know, something towards that effect. And he was just most like, yeah, well, man. yeah, he's just like, well, OK, you know, he didn't he didn't view himself through that lens. He just it's he saw himself as serving his his mission to serving, serving the greater good. And to the extent that that brought him power and he could use that to to advance his, you know, his core beliefs, he did that. But he wasn't it wasn't a power drunk thing. No, absolutely not. And, and part of it was, I mean, he was going to, and it's also, if you look at friendship and relationship and real friendship with people, I mean, he, he had real friendships and developed friendships with, you know, let's people of note. And, and, yeah, I think, I and that's what he also talks about. I think that we show him part of the interview is that there's, there is something to be in kind, you know, that makes a difference. And there is something to have in, to be an, an actual, genuine, authentic friend to people that I think also makes a difference. That, that was one of the things that I, I think that maybe people know who are older than 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 us, but don't uh, isn't widely known is that is that friendship between Father Hesburgh and Landers that's explored in the film. I just I found that incredibly interesting and also very funny. I was I, kind of struck by how uh, humorous their their kind of playfulness, their relationship kind of entailed. Can you, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I, one, I, I love your interpretation of it. I mean, I think that was something for us that here they exchanged over a thousand letters, um, you know, with her probably taken maybe 600 or so of them, I, you know, maybe a little more than that on the percentages, but uh, 
you know, they had this, they were really, really sort of best friends. And I think it shows something and some of the feedback we've gotten, um, particularly from women who've seen the film said, wow, I wish I could have that kind of relationship with my priest. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, they yeah. do. I, I mean, and because it's a real, it's a real friendship. Um, and it's a real support that I think, um, is missing for a lot of people. And I, I think it's so far missing. They don't even realize it might be possible given what, um, you know, the Catholic church is dealing with. So I, I, I think it, it's, it's just, and there you have, I mean, she, you got to understand, you know, for your listeners and I don't even, Oprah is getting outdated as a reference here, but she was sure. Oprah of her day, you know, uh, which today I think everything's so fragmented. She was kind of like Beyonce slash Ellen, you know, of her day. She's queen B. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey Jerry, so, we <clears throat> we know you're you're on a kind of a whirlwind tour right now. Um, you know, let, let, how can how can our listeners uh, demand that this movie be played? <laughs> I, I you know I know it's a select leaders right now, and uh, by all accounts, uh, you tell how you know how well are you guys doing, and uh, what uh, what our listeners can do to, to well here's to watch here's. This movie. I, I really appreciate you saying that because we haven't said this enough already. You should probably edit this back into the earlier parts of the interview. <laughs> Esbergfilm.com. There you go. Esbergfilm.com. You should go there and we have, you can easily find where it's playing near you. Now, you know, unfortunately, if you're in Santa Cruz, California, you might have to go 60 miles to see it this weekend in San Francisco. Here's the thing I want to tell you. We will get it to the pockets of the Notre Dame alumni community eventually. But really to give this film, if you want to see this film succeed and have it have the prestigious impact that a theatrical release can give Father Ted's story, we need to see people in the theaters. And we are an underdog as we go out to 30 plus cities. We're an absolute underdog. Are there any other the big movies market. out right now? What? Are there, yeah. Are there any other big <laughs> yeah. movies out right now? There's a couple. At, oh. There's one about Pikachu. Pikachu. Oh, Pikachu. <laughs> All right. Cool. Dog. And I'm not even joking, right? It's kind of funny, I, I think. But, you know, we're an underdog out there and we need people to go. Here's my promise that if you drive from Fort Wayne to South Bend, like somebody that I might have talked to today, <laughs> I'll be doing this weekend. If you do that, my promise is that the film delivers. That the opportunity is to see it in a theater and to see it with people and to be moved and connect with this film. Like you would never expect you'd connect with a film like this. It delivers. That's my promise. Yeah. You know, and, and I have no so doubt. I've I, only seen the trailer, but I've seen the trailer like five times and just about all five times I've had a, you know, choke back tears, put the goosebumps down. You know, you feel like your hair is going to break off your arm uh, because it just feels that powerful. I mean, it feels, this I truly believe this is a movie that not just this is a movie that people in this day and age need to see. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why you got Katie Couric out there putting it on Twitter and Instagram that she can't wait to go see it. The, 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 the She's got a little bit more reach than us, Jerry. Just a little bit, guys. Let's be honest, We're working only, out. We're working out. Yeah, it's only a little bit. Um, but you have the lead actress from Chicago Fire taking to her Instagram story last night saying, I was going to go see Avengers, but my friend just saw Hesburgh at the Music Box and said, I have to go. Who's going to join me at the Music Box Theater in Chicago tomorrow night at 7 p.m.? Yeah. I mean, awesome. it is the, it, this film, if people 
you know, really vote with their feet and and walk them and drive them to a theater. This film has that kind of opportunity. And, you know, maybe I'm a big dreamer, but that's what we always wanted for this film. Um, and again, it's not because, you know, filmmakers are making money. The profits are going to charity. We right. just believe in the story. That's so wonderful. Jared, well, hey, I want to talk. I just go, want to talk no, about ahead, one Jim. before we like before I let you go. I just want to talk about one thing that just I, I think was a, a, a directorial choice, and and maybe Pat could speak to it better. But having Hesburgh's voice in the film, and I'm not talking about his literal voice, although sometimes we see archival footage. But the decision to take from his letters and his correspondence and his journals and stuff like that, and sort of bring him back to life so that he could breathe through this film, I think that was a, such a, a a brilliant stroke. And I just was wondering. Um, if maybe you could speak to that to that decision. Well, it, one is it was something we discussed a lot. I will tell you that we thought maybe we could do it without narration. We thought maybe there would be a narrator that comes in and we write a script. Um, and then we thought really what we came to is who better to tell the story about Father Ted than Father Ted himself. And at times we thought, oh, can we because we had 25 plus hours of audio of him. Can we can we actually use his voice? But that wasn't going to work out technically. And that's what we came to was having a voice actor do it. And uh, I thought it came off really well. Um, and it really complements the work of um, the, the whole team and what editors William Neal and Nick Ander did. And goes great with the archival footage that Adam Lawrence uh, unearthed all across the country and even in different parts of the globe. And that, it just worked to have him tell his story. I mean, that's what it came down to for us. Yeah, I think I, I, I think once you get into, and we talked about the funny parts with, with Ann Landers and the friendship there, but once you get into what I kind of consider to be that kind of emotional gut punch moment with um, the capture, or in the capture and the release of Robert Anson, um, I think that the fact that you've sort of been walking along the journey with this Father Ted um, it makes that moment resonate uh, even even stronger. And I think that's what kind of evokes that that strong, passionate feeling. that I think people are going to feel when they see this movie. I, yeah, I, you're right. I mean, the, the last film festival we were in, we won the jury award. And what they said about the film is this is completely the film you go into. And it's not what you when you when you watch it, it's not at all what you expected. You walked into 100 minutes earlier. You know, the outcome is that great and that powerful. So I, I think you're on point there. Yeah, yeah. Guys, the film is uh, Hesburgh. It's a documentary. runs about 100 minutes long. Um, the film, Showtimes can be at HesburghFilm.com. Uh, Jerry Barca is the producer. He's a 1999 graduate of Notre Dame. American Studies, I believe, right, Jerry? You bet. That's right. Awesome. He wrote two unbelievable books uh, that go, go right into my wheelhouse. Uh, which is uh, unbeatable, right? The story of the 1988 yep. national champion Notre Dame team and a uh, big blue wrecking crew as a Giants fan growing up 1986. That really spoke to me as well. So um, if you guys have an opportunity to check out Jerry's books, and obviously if you haven't already seen it, 30 for 30 Catholics versus convicts, that's Patrick Creedon's work. And I have Jerry Barker obviously involved as well. So uh, thank you, Jerry, so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. Everybody hey. go out and, and yeah, see Jerry. Hesburgh. Thank you so much, man. So we that, really I just want to say thanks and thanks to everybody at One Foot Down. You guys uh, really appreciate your support of the film. I, I will tell you this: in Chicago, um, uh, your coverage. There was a handful of people who came up to me and said, 
you know, I just I saw it on one foot down and I knew I had to be here. And I'm, I'm not being facetious. <laughs> so I do. And, you know, you might think you're not as big as Katie Couric, but you did put people into the theater uh, in Chicago. And, and and I know that's you know not your purpose, but I do. You know, we just want to thank you as a filmmaking team for the attention uh, that you've given Hesburgh. Really appreciate it. Well, Absolutely. thanks for showing it to a bunch of us out at Notre Dame at the leadership conference. I, I just was blessed to have that opportunity to be able to watch it there. So I should have snuck in. <laughs> uh, Jerry, thanks so much. Good luck with the rest of your trip. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you again when you come to our town to uh, present Hesburgh. All right. You got it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Oh. Oof, Josh, man. I love that movie, man. It was just, it was, I'm, it's not, I, I just, I honestly believe that if I wasn't a Notre Dame guy, I would have, I would have had the same exact reaction. I just, I, I, I can't even tell you, I didn't know Father Ted at all. I, I, I knew that he, I knew the broad strokes and watching that film was like watching a film about an extraordinary man. You, maybe you thought you knew, but you just, you really didn't. And I think, all the credit in the world goes to Pat and to Jerry and to everybody who worked on this film because they, they knocked it out of the park. It's, it's going to be great. I think anybody who goes see it, they're, they're not going to be disappointed by this. I'm super excited. And, and what, what Jerry didn't mention, what he, what he told us uh, before, before we started recording was, uh, you know, they're finishing like number two to just the Avengers and some, you know, in some spots. And, you know, one theater even had to, uh, put it in a screen for Hesburgh and take out uh, a showing of uh, the Avengers. I mean, the, this is taken off. This is kind of like a grassroots. I mean, really, it, it, it is. This isn't this isn't Hollywood. Uh, you know, you know, these kinds of films, uh, they're started from with a heart and with passion. And it does not have the the Hollywood uh, push, the Hollywood flair. And, but they will come what you get in a product is far greater than than what they're you know most of the time what they're pushing out uh and so there's a, there's a satisfaction and, and i'm telling you i'm dying to see the, this film uh i was uh i made a joke with jerry before uh we went recorded about uh you know fort wayne didn't have a showing uh and that's the fort wayne south bend diocese uh the bishop <laughs> resides there uh and he and he just calmly said take the drive get up there uh yeah. but and to that, I would I would say to anybody that lives in an area uh, where it's not, make a phone call. You know, just as a simple, you'd be amazed at what a simple phone call or a simple email to your yeah, local I, theaters would will do. Because it's not just you; it's somebody else is doing it, and they'll see that and they'll be like, "All right, here, you know, they want to make some money. These theaters do. So right. what's what's going to show is what they're going to show. So if they're like, "Oh, okay, here's an audience." They're gonna they're gonna find a way to get that put into theater, uh, and, and that's that's the and best way to make. After you make the phone call to your art house cinema or whoever shows documentary films in your area, go to the contact form on hesburghfilm.com and tell Jerry and Pat and everybody associated with this film, um, you know, that you told your theater that you want it there, and you've got X number of people who would come to a showing or whatever, and then they can use that and say, look. I've got, you know, 15 people who are ready to see this film. I got 35 people who are willing to see this film. I got whatever. Um, and, 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 you know, <laughs> it's not like Avengers Endgame. Well, oh, it'll, it'll, it'll eventually get to me. It's, it's not going to have uh, that wide a distribution unless they make the push. And that's, it, and that's why I've been so fanatical 
um, looking up where it's going to be playing when it expands here on Friday to 35 markets. And I've been reaching out to people in those markets and saying, hey, man, I saw this amazing film and I really hope you see it because if you see it, then maybe in Syracuse, New York, where, by the way, Father Hesper was born, uh, yeah. they'll show this film and I can bring out, uh, you know, 20 of my friends and my fellow uh, Notre Dame alums and club members and have them see this film that I saw that just that knocked my socks off that I was fortunate enough to see uh, while I was at Notre Dame. Like I said, I, I just think that this film comes out just the perfect time for Americans to see. I, you know, we we definitely do not talk politics in this show at all, but that's a part of our it's a part of our daily lives. Um, Absolutely, it, yeah. It does not matter what it does not matter what what side or political party you affiliate with. What what does matter is the fact that the sides are took and that there are battle lines drawn across the country, and I think a you need everyone needs a simple reminder that what we share in common is far greater than what divides us. And I think someone like Father Hesburgh, his story and the what what he has been able to do throughout his life was just extraordinary. Uh, we'll emphasize that, and maybe it'll let it'll cause somebody else to hear more of what you're saying, and maybe you'll hear more about what they're saying, and then maybe there's uh, some common ground we can find and uh, and work you know work towards a better life. Yeah. Well said, Josh. Well said. Yeah, for once. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So So let's screw this all up with NFL draft talk. Yeah. Let's get into what's really important in life. Uh, The NFL. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) But no, it was. was, (laughs) There's no real good way to segue in that. So you know what I'm going to do, Jude? Oh, let's take a break. We're going to put, yeah, I think we're going to get, we're going to knock this one out this week. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, for some podcast business and and an ad that hopefully won't knock your ear out. So uh, we'll be back in just one minute. All right, we are back, uh, and we're talking NFL draft. And uh, dude, what, what do we have? We had seven guys draft or six guys drafted, right? Six, yeah. Six yep. guys drafted. Uh, it, it was a it was a decent weekend for Notre Dame with some very Odd falls. Um, Tavon Goni certainly uh, being uh, going undrafted, and then a free fall for Julian Love. Um, I guess in the more in our minds than anybody than other people's. Uh, but being the 12th or 13th cornerback selected uh, after Love's career uh, kind of seems like a gut punch a little bit. Um, I watched like every single minute of the draft, and I did that all for you. <laughs> because there's nothing that I don't want to watch. And I, especially the new way that they do the draft. I despise it. I, I like the old way better, the Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I, I call it a, a nostalgic back to my youth when I, I mean, I would just, I would sit down and watch the whole draft then. Uh, but as you get older, you find out that it's just an incredible waste of time. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, but it's, Speak to that for just for one second. Peter King had a, had his you know typical post draft um, you know inside scuttlebutt type story uh, they they published on Monday Morning Quarterback, and one of the the tidbits was that the NFL had asked teams not to pick uh, their first round picks within the first five minutes of being on the clock because they wanted to give their broadcast partners enough time to play highlights and talk endlessly about who could be the pick that we all knew was waiting to happen. Absolutely. So, 
Um, if that, if you didn't, if you didn't need any more uh, reason proof to hate the was, NFL, there you go. Yeah, right. I mean, it, the this, you know, the, it just it, 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 it's a made-for-TV production now, and it it is what it is. You know, I it just the even the the well, cloying interviews. TV. I mean, did you see the crowds there? It was that was insane. Yeah, I mean Nashville completely turned out. I, I expect Vegas to be just as insane next year, or, or um, even more so, or even more so because you know there's a couple of things to do in Vegas that are you know, and then you can also go over to the NFL draft if you wish. So, so instead of country kudos. music, are they going to do like burlesque? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, they're they're just so I mean, they're just so unoriginal in how uh, how they pick up on the location and what they're doing. I mean, it's yeah, just I mean, so everything obvious. gets everything gets whittled down to the most common denominator, right? It's oh, like Nashville, uh, Dolly Parton, and Tim McGraw, and got you know, it. Yeah, barbecue, I mean, I mean, <laughs> hot <laughs> southern nights. Uh, you know. So. Well, hey, and I mean, this gives, but this gives me a moment to like put my hands up in the air, like the true champion that I am. You should do it and throw your tranquil right all up in your grill because he was drafted. Fourth round, my boy going out to LA to the Super Chargers. Uh, whereas, as Nina would say, it's Notre Dame, uh, Duloc, LAC out there. So, uh, yeah, Jude, uh, are you wallowing in your defeat? Uh, yes, I, I, I'm eating a, a ton of crow for all of the things that I said on previous podcasts, and just another reminder that. You know, I can bloviate with the best of them. Uh, I can get there. You know, I can put stuff out there that makes totally no sense at all. Um, <laughs> now, to my credit, I think I walked it back after he had, you know, he had a, a great combine showing. Um, but I really did think the injury concerns were going to have were going to give teams pause. Um, but, you know, kudos. So maybe to the, the injury concerns knocked him from a second round to the fourth, you know, to the fourth. So, yeah. I mean, you know. I'm a big, I mean, I'm just a big believer in Drew Tranquil and huge fan of his uh, and his story. I, I just, I just think that he offers more than what there's, than what they want to let on. I just, I just don't see how you look at his production in college and the, his size is fine. Anyone saying he's too small is ridiculous or that he's maxed out his frame is ridiculous. Uh, you know, but look at his production and look at what he did at the combine with his numbers. He is athletic. He is fast. I just, I find it crazy to think now he may not be, you know, a starter, you know, first year, even second year, but I think Drew Tranquil is, you know, an eight to 10 year player in the NFL and will, will become a starter uh, at some point. I I just think that he's a good football player and he brings every intangible, you know, possible uh, on the positive side, uh, which only helps him, you know, further his career. Right. I, I, I'm, you know, look, it was never about not being a Drew Tranquil fan. I, I love the guy. I think he had a, a tremendous heart and to do what he did last year when he was battling. Oh, it was, all, it was all injuries with you. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that was, that was really, really the only thing. And, you know, s- some stuff that I had read had kind of, you know, you start looking for things to, to validate your own convic- convictions. So, um, you know, did I think he was going to get taken in the fourth round? No, I thought that was a little early, but I also thought the third round that some people were saying in the comments section was absolutely insane too. Now, having said that, the way the third round 
uh, played out, I started to believe like, okay, well, if Julian Love's not going to get picked, then maybe <laughs> there is space for Drew Tranquil because it felt like after the first round, we started taking crazy pills. And I got nothing against I Miles think somebody Blake. was taking yeah, crazy pills at pick six. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, oh, God, it's a Giants fan. We can talk about that forever. But, um, you know, Miles Boykin in the third round, I think, was completely a reflection of uh, how he knocked it out of the park at the combine. The boy got himself uh, seriously paid. And and it's impossible to say where he would have been taken. Um, But just to hear Miles himself, he, he said so many people went back and checked the tape after after what, you know, basically what he had done at the combine or whatever. And, and not only was it the coaches, but it was the media who started saying, okay, wait a second, we've got to give this guy a little, you know, a little bit of closer look. And then they start talking about him and it becomes more of a thing more, you know, they're, they're hyping him up. And then I just think they've they've lumped him into a category of, of big wide receiver that wasn't explosive. And, you know, you watch a lot of those passes, he's got his guy beat. But some of them were underthrown. I mean, Ian Book doesn't have the strongest arm in the world. And before that, he had Brandon Wimbush. And, but you just watch, you watch the, like you said, watch the film. And he, he Miles Boykin's a man. You know, he's beating guys. He, he, get, he gets off cover just fine. He's got, got explosion. And, he sh- and not only that, but <clears throat> the film that you're looking at are Notre Dame's biggest games. He's showing up in the biggest games at the biggest moments. And making the plays, and right. his catch radius is amazing, and I, I, I have no doubt that that teams looked at him as and lumped him in with that general big wide receiver category. And okay, you know, here, here's a fifth, sixth round guy, but then you start paying attention, like you said, and I, I just think the more they watched, the more they liked, and they could, and you tie that into what his numbers were at the combine, and you're like, okay, you know, this this guy can play, and I, I just the Ravens. Uh, also drafted uh, uh, Hollywood Brown too, didn't they? Yep. Yep. And, and, and to me, I mean, Hollywood Brown, you know, smoking fast receiver, right? Not the biggest guy in the world. Uh, he's kind of a little guy. And I mean, I know that. Yeah, it, it I, I know the little guys like they were, they were a condo. But, you know, these are, these are men amongst boys in this league. So, and he, he, he has an injury history himself. So, you know, I, I think it was smart what the Ravens did. You know, <clears throat> you know, you can hit on both of them, and you got your your speed and your big. And I, I just I thought all the way around the whole Miles Boykin situation was about as good as it was going as he could have hoped for, and is in a real good spot. Maybe the quarterback that he's going to could be a little could be a little bit more accurate, but Lamar's still a young quarterback, so uh, right. he certainly can. Uh, keep developing and, and to uh, do a better passer. Right. So just let's back up for a second and re- just recap for people, just in case that they missed it. First round, Jerry Tillery, Los Angeles Chargers pick like 28. Uh, third round, Miles Boykin, as we just talked to Baltimore Ravens, probably about pick 93. That was the first two days. Uh, the day three is where we saw a lot of the movement. Julian Love taking off the board pretty quickly to the Giants. I think it was like 106. Who already got um, DeAndre Baker. Yeah. The- two of the three finalists to one team and, and yeah. love wasn't even the target of theirs. Like he, but he was sitting there. So they took him. Right. I mean, if you read the Matt Fortuna article who was embedded with Julian love on his, on his draft days, cause it stretched into multiple days, obviously um, the giants had never called him, had never contacted him, never 
brought him in for a private workout. Huh. Uh, Matt says that they didn't have any representatives at the pro day. I don't know. That conflicts with the Michael Birch version of events where he said all 32 teams were represented. But nevertheless, the Giants didn't show much interest in Julian Love until it became obvious that the best player available was Julian Love and they were in the prime position to go grab him. So uh, kudos to the Giants for, for grabbing both Baker, um, both uh, yeah, Baker, right? DeAndre Baker and yep. uh, and Julian Love. And then later in the fourth round, uh, Drew Tranquil to the Los Angeles Chargers, as we mentioned. And then moving on to the sixth round, we had uh, Dexter Williams go to the, to the Green Bay Packers. Yeah. Yeah, which is Josh's team, right? The yeah. Team as well. Yeah, and you, you love Dexter Williams, so I think this 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 was a match made in heaven, right? Oh, oh, and I'm the, ridiculously excited. I might actually yeah. watch an NFL game live on Sundays now. <laughs> I'm serious. And I, then finally, I, I totally get it. I totally Sundays get it. are hard so for me. I'm, wa- I'm watching like Sunbelt games on Sundays, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a joke. I'm watching, trying to watch replays of Notre Dame, and then I'll mix in uh, like a mid-major game. Or something in there with it, and I'll catch highlights of the NFL uh, later. I just the longer I the longer I do the site stuff, uh, the less NFL I'm able to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a very typical person who consumes a ton a ton of college football on Saturdays and is married, right? Oh, uh, yeah, you, uh, yeah, you cash especially. You cash in every single one of your favors to stay on the couch as long as humanly possible on Saturday. I mean, that's why at the solid verbal, verbal they talk about the window of opportunity, right? The opportunity Absolutely. to go out and, and do the, the honeydew chore or whatever. Um, close here. Al's down to the New Orleans Saints. Um, so the Saints pick up. And I believe you just did an interview with New Orleans Radio. Tell us a little bit about what kind of things they're interested in with Al's back. Yeah, uh, I think it was... Uh... WRNO, uh, I think 1250 down there in New Orleans. I, I believe that's the, I think, uh, they, you know, they were really, he was really, uh, inter- he had said he had heard a lot of good things about, about Alizé, uh, as a person, uh, it w- which we both kind of joked about a little bit because, you know, he had gotten himself into a little bit of trouble, um, you know, with suspension and all that. But, uh, but I, I, I ended up agreeing with him in a lot of ways because I said, you know, look, here's a guy who was suspended for an entire season and it was a rough season for Notre Dame in 2016. And yet he was upbeat. He was never, he never came off as someone who looked like they, you know, got the blow like he took and, you know, was always there, you know, to try to help his team become better. And I think that says more, that says more about him than the suspension than, than, you know, than what he did to get suspended, which was, you know, academics. I, you know, the NFL doesn't care. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, but the NFL doesn't care if, you know, if you got, uh, you know, a D plus, you know, in American history. Uh, so they prove that with Jerry, obviously with all the talk about Jerry Tillery, but, uh, right. but you know, so we well, spent a lot also of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Simmons, who was taken in the first round and was involved in that physical altercation in high school and stuff. So, yeah, uh, I mean, clearly we, we talked a lot about that, about, you know, his, his willingness to compete. He, he does the, the NFL. Like, look, let's not kid ourselves. The, the NFL for almost all these guys is the ultimate goal. Right. But you know, for a handful yeah. and Alizé is definitely one of them, it, it goes beyond that. That's like, that's what they're living for uh, is to become that professional football player. And, and I think he has the drive and, and the will to do it. And I, and he has the physical capabilities, you know, what, yeah. what's amazing. What's amazing with Alizé is he made so many amazing catches 
I shouldn't say so many because, <laughs> but he made a lot of amazing catches. And then it was just some of the simple things that, that slipped. And well, that's just, you know, those are the things that you can work on. You know, it, it's, you right. can't teach instinct and, and, you know, some of the things that he was able to do, but you can definitely get in there with better concentration, better technique. And I, I think that, I think he's going to find a home there in New Orleans. Uh, I don't know how long he'll be there. You know, how once you get down to later rounds and, and undrafted free agents, some of the teams these guys go to, you know, may only last a couple of years and then they're on to the next squad. And maybe that's where things catch fire. But regardless, I, I think Alizé, you know, has a, has a very good shot of becoming a, a long time uh, player in the league. Yeah. I mean, big, huge target. Um, you know, when he gets his hands on the ball, he did have some problems with some drops and stuff like that. But also, like you said, caught, you know, caught some major uh, big, big catch clutch throws or whatever. Uh, a lot of tread on the tires, too. I, I mean, feel like he was still criminally underutilized in the Notre Dame offense. So I think if he um, if they can find the right way to put a mix of, you know, lining him in the slot or, or in line or, you know, blocking or whatever they need him to do and, and mix it around, I, I think he could be qu- quite, a, quite a chess piece for New Orleans. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful as well. Hey, did you listen to the uh, to the new Audible podcast with uh, Feldman and and uh, Stu, I did not clue me in. Okay, so uh, they, they specifically brought up Notre Dame did, uh, in their in their last podcast, and I I, I I couldn't understand where they were trying to go because here, here's a team that I, I believe since 2012 is third in the country in draft picks total. Okay, does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like third or fourth of- in total draft yeah. picks, and you know. Look, Notre Dame's done really well in the draft in the Brian sure. Kelly, Kelly era, and they it just wasn't good enough for those guys. It was it. I at first well, I thought they were they were about if that to wasn't race. good enough. Then they must really be shitting all over USC. Then, huh? I mean, yeah, no shit. They they uh, I thought they were leading into like a you know here's a here's a program you know that's been on a rise kind of a thing kind of a vibe you know like look what they did the prior eight years what Kelly you know and comparing us to, you know, the elite of college football, like, look, look, here's all these draft picks. And instead they just, they did the total low hanging fruit bullshit of comparing them to still comparing them to Alabama and Clemson. Uh, they wanted to say how far below we were still of Oklahoma and town. I mean, it was just, I, I couldn't understand what, where they were getting at. And then they got to there and I'm like, are you kidding me? You're, yeah. you're you're doing. You're taking. A I mean, team I think it's had six draft picks, and well, it, like I said, it's look, been in the I, top four in the in the entire country in total draft picks. You know, through all this time, a lot of big names, and you still want to take a dump on them. I, I like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. There? I think it's natural to compare playoff teams, and and like, I think USC that any would ra- been the school to do that too. You're, right. I, mean, I think exactly I think any right. rational, reasonable Notre Dame fan would say we are not in the Clemson tier. We're not in the Alabama no. tier. And so for the, for the extent that, you know, a tier one exists, um, Notre Dame is not there. Um, and I can understand the, that at, conversation, at the, but that wasn't what they, it was like, that was the point, but it wasn't the point. They right. were like, then they were pushing it on to, to like seven other schools. And that's like, all right, well, there was four schools in the playoffs last year and we were one of them. So I, yeah. I, I mean, I look. I think one of the one of the things that and I'm not we, a big conspiracy guy about the I'm really not about their bash and a bash, but it just it, it felt like out of nowhere 
for a national podcast. And I, I, I just, I thought Stu was a little better than that. I know Feldman's not. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. So one of the things that we, we talk about a lot is the reloading year after year, right? It's not just, it can't be boom or bust. We can't have six draft picks next year. And then only Ben Koyak goes in, you know, the following year or whatever. <laughs> right. right. And so, uh, you know, I was, although I think these things are laughable and they're horrendously inaccurate, I was at least um, somewhat uh, gratified by seeing uh, Khalid Kareem, Liam Eikenberg, Tommy Kramer, Julian Aquara uh, making the list of the early 2020, you know, mock draft, big boards or first round projections and stuff like that. I think that there's a recognition here that the Notre Dame is in a lot of a lot of senses reloading right and that just right. because they lost Jerry Tillery and Drew Tranquil and, T- and Tavon Coney that the defense isn't going to fall apart that there's there's pieces here that are elite chess pieces right um Absolutely. and so you know look it still all comes down to execution but at the end of the day I think it's completely fair to put Khalid Kareem Julian Acquara, especially when when Brian Kelly said he he had a tape that he put together where Julian Acquara had 27 missed sacks last year. I mean, I think that speaks volumes about just a little bit more. He said it. Average. He said it half. If he would have got half of those missed sacks, he would have led the con- country by by like a like a three sack margin. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah it's uh, great. And, and it's, I think it speaks to why he was being included in some of these way too early projections and stuff. Now, look, a lot can happen. People get injured. People underperform. We've seen it year after year. Let me tell you my, let me tell you my projection. Sure. And I mean, maybe it's a dream. I'm not, I'm not sure what, what we're going to classify here. We're, we're last day of April. Uh, But you do realize every single one of Notre Dame's offensive linemen is eligible to come back in 2020. And that's amazing. Every single one. And so you and you, so you got Liam Eikenberg and Tommy Kramer getting some love for the 2019 draft. Hey, dog, they can come back. They can do a Zach Martin. They can do a Ronnie Stanley. They can sure. do, you know, a Mike McGlinchey. You know, hell, even, I mean, Quentin Nelson, I mean, honestly battled, you know, had an internal battle with himself about leaving Notre Dame. He had, he had thought long and hard and had a conversation with his dad about coming back. For right. another year. I mean, can you imagine Quentin Nelson one more? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, but, just nothing to prove. But, but, you know. I mean, you could look at next year. You could, you could look at 2020 where you could possibly have all five starting linemen. And you could have Ian Book back. I think a lot of people believe Book's gone no matter what. After what we saw in the spring, I sure hope he stays. Um, and that's just – look. I'm all about I'm all about fifth year people or fourth year seniors. Get them old. Get old. Stay old. My high school coach uh, used to say, you know, for every freshman that you have starting, uh, you know, like on both sides of the ball, you know, divide that by two. That's how many losses you have. I mean, right. I'm from the old school mentality of freshman equal losses uh, and, and all that jazz. I like we like upperclassmen. Sure. So you could have all five starting linemen, Ian Book, and then. Insert one of those freshmen, say like a guy like uh, a possibility of a commitment from Chris Tyree. So you got this absolute burner with this gigantic offensive line that's, uh, you know, a veteran squad with an extremely accurate quarterback. 
And you start looking at 2020, if the pieces fall right, like you're looking like, oh my God. Now, that's my dream. So if it has anything else to do with my life, it will crash and burn <laughs> horribly. Well, but, uh, but, but, the, yeah. but the thing is, the possibility is there. This is what they have recruited for. And I, I, it's why I love the decision of Jarrett Patterson to center so much. Like, and total, like they totally bought in day one with him on spring and, and riding with him. And it, it, you know, a decision like that, rather than just go with Roland, you know, you're going with the guy that's going to, that you're looking at for the future. And it's probably better at right now anyways, but all this stuff projecting it, I, I'm telling Notre Dame fans already know, you know, it's, it's been such up and down, up and down seasons for so many years you know, now that we've been able to string together, um, you know, two great years in a row uh, and really three out of four, uh, looking towards the future and seeing that, hey, this this ride may not stop. You know, we may, we may not have another eight and five year uh, for a while uh, is really encouraging. Yeah, I, I just I got to be honest with you. One thing I take issue with is I don't I don't understand fifth year quarterbacks. At Notre Dame, and I know no, this is a big it, a big insane. deal about graduating quarterbacks and having them exhaust their eligibility. And every year, there's a, a big thing about when they take their graduate transfer or whatever. But what is the season that Ian Book would have that is not good enough to declare for the NFL draft, but is good enough to retain his fifth year starting job? Well, I mean, and I guess any more the fifth year rule, the, the new fifth year rule cancels out all that. But you know, how many times have you seen it where? You know, people are up in arms because the guy's a year of eligibility. Look, if these quarterbacks are any good, and they'll they will leave. You know, quarterbacks generally do not stay past the time that they that they're told to go, uh, regardless of eligibility. So, uh, but I think the I comment mean, right now, I think the book worst that, case scenario is the worst case scenario is that the the book has a as a nine and three type season or ten and two. And it's good, but it's not NFL draft, like, you know, second round good. And so he says, I'm going to give it one more year. And then all of a sudden we got this backup, this clog, right? So Dracovic announces he's going to transfer. And maybe Brendan Clark announces he's going to transfer, right? And so you've taken book back for a fifth year and you've caused this problem for 2021 and beyond. So well, would, I you that, national, would you trade a national, would you trade a national championship? Not just a championship, but let's say a, a win in the playoffs for that clog for the next season. I would. I mean, I'll, I'll take that trade. I'll, if I could sign that up right now, I'm, I will. I mean, am I losing people to transfer? Yeah, I don't them? care. I'll, I'll lose. Look, screw it. Lose, lose Jerkovic, lose Brendan Clark. I don't care. Get us to the chance. I'm, I'm serious. Okay, I completely yeah. don't agree with that. Because then you're just screwing yourself for two years. Beyond. Well, I mean, well, I'm, you, I'm cool with that. Then you got, then you you got, got a playoff Pratt, win. You got, now you're going to get a young guy behind. For- you're going to take a Joe Burrow or how are you going to do Go this? recruit. I mean, you got Drew, you got Drew Pine coming in, go recruit a guy, Trevor. I mean, go get it yourself, your own Trevor Lawrence. What I'm saying is, is that Oof. these, these things are rare. Okay. Winning a playoff game is something we haven't done yet. We right. haven't won a big bowl game. No offense to the citrus bowl. But we have not won a big bowl game since January 1st, 1994. Right. I will, and I, we've had a lot of those seasons you just talked about that we would have already. I can deal with that. Give me the season that's going to give me, you know, 2012. I, I could, I handled 
2013-2014 fairly well because of what we got in 2012. Not so much the the game itself, but that season was just so incredible. It was right. able to carry over. I mean, and we've seen that. Like the 93 season helped people get through, uh, you know, the last few years of Holtz where, you know, it wasn't, you know, all good. Um, wow. No, so I, yeah, I will sign that up today. Get me to the So, at least so the you're saying, game. I, you're saying nine and I'll three take, in two, 2019 book returns, you go 12 and 0 or 11 and 1 during the regular season and win at least one playoff game in 2020. And then 2021, you enter in with possibly Drew. Drew Pine, a redshirt sophomore. sophomore, as your as your starting quarterback. Yeah, I'll take that. Okay, sophomore quarterbacks start all the time and, and win. I I, I totally understand. It, I, I mean, build, I, a, look, build around Lawrence, him. I mean, Tua, I mean, I get it. I get it. I it, totally get it. But. We're still going to have an offensive line. I think we know that. We we're just we're just two on the roll right now, as far as offensive line goes. We've been building our our cred on the defensive side of the ball, especially on the edge, which is. Always, which has haunted Notre Dame for 20 years, and all of a sudden now, it's it, it, by all appearances, we have an amazing amount of riches. I I think we're fine. Get me to that. Get me to that spot, and I don't give a shit if they leave. I that I, I think that's a good thing to be. I think that's a good, healthy position to be in, where a quarterback leaving doesn't destroy your life. You know, plug in the next guy. I mean, we all thought that our season was over in 2015 when Malik Zaire went down. Right. You know, and here comes a guy who had a horrible spring game, sophomore, Deshaun Kaiser. And, you know, and I know people hate and I hate saying it, but, you know, you're only two plays away from undefeated. I mean, but that's the honest to God truth. Right. So, yeah, I'll take it, man. I'll, I'll, I'll throw the dice on that one. We've, we've had too many shit seasons uh, that followed shit seasons that meant nothing where I'll take the I'll take the something. And roll the dice on the next year. Absolutely. This is kind of off topic, but I was thinking about this a lot in the past week, and I just want to get your thoughts on it. I see the Georgia game next year as a playoff elimination game, akin to the Notre Dame-Michigan game, whereas I, I don't believe even if Michigan had beaten Ohio State that there was a that they were in the playoff for sure. So I uh, think that well, – They were, they were that, sitting there at fourth, weren't they? I, I just I, – I don't I, – Oklahoma beating Texas again. I understand that nerd and the Michigan would have beaten Ohio state. And that would have been a big, they would have been an 11, one loss, big, big 10 champion or whatever, or big, yeah, big 10 champion. So, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's there. Maybe it's not a playoff. For, I think for Notre Dame, for Notre for Dame, Notre Dame, it's, Dame is a little bit different, right? Because the right, it's an elimination right. game for us. Right. Yeah. Um, I think to, to what you had just, just said there, no, I think if Michigan beats Ohio state, go to the big 10 championship game, win that, I think they're in. And, yeah. It, it, the hype train was too strong for that, and I know it. I know the committee has nothing to do with the media, but they're not deaf. Uh, so, yeah. I, I, which I is funny because I, but, I but you know, when the game was played, Alabama. it was it was pretty much built that way. I mean, people said, "Nah, you know, there's still a chance," but I don't think anyone really believed what they were saying. Uh, but you know, as seasons unfold, things you know are, things are constantly moving and changing. Right. Uh, but yeah, you can definitely. I I think for Notre Dame, Georgia is. You're I, mean, absolutely. I, just, I look at that 2019 schedule and I see the, the big games as being Georgia, Michigan, and well, I mean, either USC or Stanford, whoever's good. Right. I mean, right. And am with, I, with Virginia playing the ultimate spoiler, because I, I think right. the ultimate sleeper game this year is probably and, that Virginia game. After and Georgia. I, think, I think an 11, one record against a good 
maybe possibly top 10 Michigan team with a win on that there, but say a two touchdown loss to Georgia who may end the season at number three ends up having Notre Dame on the outside looking in. I think it's just so funny to think of your season as you won't, you won't see it until you get all the way down the end of the line. But if you finish 11 and one, you can hang your hat on the fact that you beat Michigan again. You can hang your hat on the fact that you've closed strong in California, which you haven't been doing that much recently. Um, but at the end of the day, there's just not enough meat on that resume. Yeah, now, having exactly. said that, we thought Florida State was going to be good coming into last True. season. So um, people can completely uh, we surprise undefe- you. Into- the thing was, though, we stayed undefeated last year. Sure. Uh, so that, all the conversations they had, none of it amounted to shit because right. look, nobody was going to keep Notre Dame out with a 12-0 schedule. This isn't Boise State going 12-0. No, uh, we didn't run through the Mountain West Conference. We went through a, a schedule full of Power Five teams, and and yes, teams like Florida State were down. Virginia Tech was not uh, what Virginia Tech is normally, uh, but you know none of it mattered. They, they won those games, and they did a lot. What Notre Dame doesn't do, and they they won a lot of those games handily. Um, you know, there may be a little bit of struggle in the game, but like Virginia Tech game, you know, they struggled a little bit, and then boom, exploded. Sure. Um, so. I, but I just, but you're absolutely right. I just the what's on the schedule next year. Uh, what th- that those words exactly. The meat on the bone is not there uh, that we know of. I mean, and I, I, th- I think Georgia is going to be an outstanding team. I mean, it just I was reading a little bit about their um, their depth chart today, and it just I to be honest with you, it just it it left me feeling cold about the <laughs> possibility of Notre Dame going down to a hostile Athens and. And, you know, and, and, and coming out with a, with a win and it, take nothing away from, from Notre Dame. I, I think they're, they're going to come compete this year, but I just, um, I'm just world worried, you know, yeah. just real worried. And, no, that Georgia I'm, I'm worried, that, circle, I'm worried right? that we're going to be making some of the same crazy leaps of logic that Michigan fans were making last year about saying, well, sure, we lost to, to Georgia, but, you know, and just trying to. Into well, we our way into the, green, y'all. into the playoff, <laughs> yeah, into the playoff conversation, you know. And then, yeah, that's the other thing is, you know, you look at 2015 and the egg that they laid against Boston College, and I think even if they beat Stanford, it's a hard discussion to, you know, have them in the playoffs, right? And no, so, absolutely. That, that game, right? That and that that's the what that's what I point to like the most when I talk about. Uh, the fucking banishment of the Shamrock series or what should be the banishment is that game. Exactly. Where you had to take away a home game travel. Ah, look, I, I don't care about any other argument. Travel sucks and wear and tear sucks, but you had to travel to play this game inside of a baseball stadium. They hate us. They play tough. And you lay, yeah, you lay an egg. It was a crap game. Uh, you're lucky you won that game. And what happened after that game? They dropped in the rankings. You know, yeah, they, it they, isn't, they, it isn't they, win in advance. It's, you know, they had to put up some style points and they right. failed to do that. And so you're absolutely correct. Even if they go out to Stanford, I still think Oklahoma passes them. Um, I, I don't personally believe that that should happen, but that's what was going to happen. Uh, then you're going to have a lot of pissed off, uh, you know, Notre Dame people. Pointing at just that Clemson game as the only loss, uh, but it, so it is. I mean, the- so yeah. When we talk about working without a safety net, you lose to Georgia, all of your 
trump cards basically go away and you have to really crucify the teams that you were supposed to beat up on there can't be a 22 to 19 bowling green win it has to be 44 to 7 but i guess we can look back i mean we can look back at the you know look back at the 2017 season though um you know it you, you lose to georgia you know close at home at home and still you know there there was a there was a there was a window of opportunity. There's a chance uh, for Notre Dame to make because the they were ranked the three going into the the Miami game where they got absolute right. pants. Right. So if so, they if they turn the tables and pantsed Miami, then then you're yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I just think this is a you know we're talking about this because you know we're talking about it. It's fun to talk about right. and it's interesting, but at the same time, it just it goes with the flow of the season. I, I just you know, we're, we're never going to know until no, these games so many are played out. And, yeah. you know, 2017 was a perfect example of a year Notre Dame could have had one loss because that one loss was to, per, you know, perhaps the second best team in the country that year in, sure. in Georgia. And, you know, people respected that. Maybe not that week. Uh, you know, it, it's funny is that you, you, we all knew Georgia was a good team coming in, a great team coming in. Yeah. And yet, you know, you play them up to, and you lose close. And the national media, Notre Dame media and Notre Dame fans, especially, you know, we're still kind of shitting on the team uh, because they had thought they had seen things from 2016 still in that game. Right. But, you know, the more the weeks went on and Notre Dame's out there winning football games and winning them handily. And you're watching Georgia beat the shit out of everybody. And you're like, oh, so that was like a top five game right there. Okay, you know, one point loss. We, that that's doable. Uh, so, you know, can that happen again? Can Notre Dame go down to Georgia and, you know, lose by less than a, you know, a field goal or less and, and walk away better for it. Um, you know, obviously a win would be better, but being a good, still in a decent position. Yeah, that can happen. Uh, but sure. other things are going to have to happen. Georgia's going to have to win a lot of their games by a large margin. Notre Dame's going to have to win a lot of their games by a large margin. Other teams are going to have to lose. Uh, but it's certainly there. I mean, I, you never say never, but, right? And it's so funny because you, you'll after the Georgia game, you'll want to play fast forward to the to the USC game like you did in 2017, where <laughs> if you if you lose, then there's really no there's no chatter, there's no buzz, there's nothing feeling, there's no energy or momentum towards Notre Dame in the playoff talk until you go and you take care of USC in the way that the and that was a that was a great point. That was a great point that was driven home uh, quite a bit, even before the season, by uh, the guys on the Irish Illustrated podcast with uh, Priest O'Malley and and uh, Pete Sampson. Sampson. They yeah. they spoke to that before the season, uh, and then they spoke to it after. We're like, look, you know, especially coming off that 2000, 2016 year, you need you need these big games. You have to win these to be taken seriously. And so the thing was, you know, after the Georgia game. The only you have to wait another month. You know, you're not going to be in the conversation because you're not playing the teams of that caliber yet. You have to wait another month until USC comes to town. And then what was great, what really set it on fire for Notre Dame uh, was, you know, really the beginning of the end was that NC State was having such an awesome year. And so you go in and you beat the dog piss out of uh, SC, your, you know, your biggest rival. Uh, 49 to 14 with Sam Darnold, uh, the world savior. 
<laughs> and then you had this really good NC State team, or at least hyped NC State team at that at that point, you know, come in, and then you you handle them, and right. you know at that point, it was evident that the entire country took notice, uh, and like yeah, this is a good you know, everyone everyone was jumping on that that train right there. Uh, yeah. In fact, that that year, uh, Doug Farmer with NBC, he, he kept saying. Uh, and the games all leading up to NC State, he he circled NC State like that's that's a loss. And, and I'm not calling Doug out on that. I was in a lot of agreement with him. Like this right. is gonna be that's gonna be a, a tough one, tougher than most people think. And as the season went on, you're you're looking at that like God, you know, oh God. After it's right after USC and everything coming together, you could just see you know them them coming out and going, you know, and. You win, and it's like you know, it's almost like, what do I do with this? <laughs> and, well, you, <laughs> you go down to Miami and you, you know, face a buzzsaw. Right. I mean, I just I remember NC State being just absolutely terrified of their defensive line, and and it ended up being that I think three guys off that line got drafted pretty high up in the in yeah. the draft the the following spring or whatever. Uh, obviously, starting with Bradley Chubb, um, but you know, BJ Hill and. Uh, uh, Justin, was it Justin Jones? Was he the last one? It doesn't matter. But um, yeah, it just just the way that Josh Adams ran all over them, and 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 uh, Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey split them. It was just amazing. So was was that the um, game that maybe it was SC? But I thought it was the NC State game where uh, we just need this in gift form, and just was that the game where where Nelson and uh, McGlinchey were like hugging and jumping up and down, running yeah. down. The- when Josh Adams game, ran right? away, right? That was, I'm pretty sure that was NC State. Yeah. I mean, they were. So. I mean, they were like hugging, like crying each other. They were like doing what big grown fucking giants do, and that's you know they're going up, giving themselves chest bumps. But it was like all the way down the field, like yeah. they, <laughs> like watching how excited those guys were. Like they just did their job. They laid waste to the people behind them. Uh, God, I, I man, I loved that season to death. <laughs> Hey, I, I don't want to. I want this podcast to end without talking about the self-reported time, the forty times for some of uh, these guys who play on the team. Obviously, we saw Troy Pride. Uh, if you watched last, uh, let's see, Monday night. Yep. So last night um, on Notre Dame Day, you saw uh, Troy Pride basically look like he was running <laughs> like the Road Runner, and everybody else was more like Wiley Coyote Wait uh, down. in terms of how fast he could run that forty-yard dash. Um, apparently. According to Braden Lindsay, he runs a four. Uh, Troy Pride runs a four three two. Braden Lindsay runs a four four zero, and Michael Young and Lawrence Keys both run a four four eight. I'll tell you what, Braden Lindsay raced in that race the other night, and he looked about as smart. fast as the cheerleader. And I'm not taking anything away from Braden. No, Lindsay. that guy's a returning that, champion. Uh, yeah, and that cheerleader is as fast as hell. So, um, <laughs> so look, but he and then Braden Lindsay about they uh, weren't uh, in this. They had weren't a little off season injury. They were barely in the frame uh, when Troy Pride was skipping towards the end. So um, I was just, I, I, look, I just, you fall in love with these numbers. And, and look, as Corey Holmes, and I've got, I'm obligated to to, uh, to mention him, you know, as Corey Holmes proves, uh, you can be the fastest guy in the team, but that doesn't mean anything unless you do something with it, right? So, um, but I just, going back to our conversation with Greg a couple of weeks ago about Lawrence Keys and, and, you know, and then Braden Lindsay and just kind of feeling excited about the crop of, of wide receivers. 
when you hear stuff like that, you just you get dreams of, oh man, do you think Ian Book can like throw it fifty yards through the air and just have these guys <laughs> like, you know, run in stride and you know maybe we'll beat a Georgia DB or maybe somebody will slip off the line and it'll well, be like Will Fuller thing. and a Dory Jackson and you know and that's the thing start- too, a guy like a guy like Keys is more quick than fast and he's still running a four four eight. Yeah. Uh, and so- it- it just allows you to dream. I think. So I like. To, I, that, I would like to know what Finky's time is. I think. I think. I think Fink's gonna have. I'm. T- I'm telling you. I think Fink's gonna have just an incredible year. I mean, not Golden Tate like in numbers, uh, but I think he's gonna have Golden Tate like impact. And I. I don't say that with any kind of. You know, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic at all. I just. I think. God, he is just so underwhelming in fan support. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> or, look, or confidence that the guy I, can. But you know, when you go through all spring, and the comments are like, "Oh yeah, this practice, like a practice eight, was the first practice. Think you didn't embarrass everybody." <laughs> I mean, that that's saying something, right? I mean, and then you and watch that, him in the games; he's open, man. Yeah, I think the I think the you know we're both not NFL fans. I think maybe the one game we can both cop to watching start to finish might be the Super Bowl. I certainly did this last year. And and I just remember marveling at this Julian Edelman guy, and I know he's not, he's he's a household name, so I'm 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 not you know disparaging him in the least, but just every single time I thought to myself, that guy's just not even going to be able to get off the line because the guy's going to jam the DB's going to jam him, and yet he found a way to get open, and that's exactly what Chris Fink is for me. Like there's Absolutely. so many there were so many plays last year. Somebody ought to cut a video of Chris Fink just running past this dude or making a guy, you know, stumble or whatever. And he's open and book doesn't see him. Look, Hunter yeah. Renfro got drafted this last weekend. Drafted former yeah. walk-on Hunter Renfro. who pretty much stole that trophy for Fink this year who had better numbers. And I, I think that Fink's in that, that category. I mean, he's, he's in that Edelman Renfro. I mean, you know, the, the twitchy, fast white guy in the slot, that's a real position. <laughs> I mean, that that's what we're, it's, yeah. hell, it's, it's worked for quite a long time. He's a good football player. The guy's a hell of a receiver. He's fearless. Watch him. You know, he's not John Goodman back there catching punts. I mean, th- this, is a, this is a guy who can play, play football. He was hampered by a option system in high school that could never showcase his real talent. And, you know, if the, if he would have came into Notre Dame with four star, hell, even three star ranking, you know, and as a scholarship player, I think the conversation is dramatically different. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, then, I'm, all, I'm all about. And it. then the cherry on the top of the Sunday is the offensive line is interviewed during the Notre Dame Day festivities, and they and they're all asked name one player that's going to surprise fans yeah. this year, 2019, right? And so oh Tommy Kramer says Chase Claypool, and it's the only uh, only guy in the offense that's, that's <laughs> named or whatever, right? And so we all have, you know, we're drinking the Kool-Aid. We're saying, you know, Chase Claypool, if he can just, you know, do this and Maybe do that, and he can, he can put it all together, and he's got the length, and he's got the – He's got the ups and he's got everything. He's got the whole package. He just needs to, this is the year. This is the contract year, you know? And then to hear Tommy Kramer say, you know, this is the guy that's going to light the world on fire in 20, 2019. Like, I just you can't help but get excited taking everything together. The the, the 40 times, watching Troy Pride run, uh, you know, Braden Lindsay run, uh, Chase Claypool being named. I just, if you're not excited about the wide receiver core, uh, I don't know what else we can do to convince you because it sounds like everything's, you know, lining up perfectly. 
And see, the, you you took a different turn, and I would thought you were going anyways. Oh, okay. This is how right. excited I am because Kurt Heinisch was a name that that multiple guys mentioned, and to me, that's I'm more excited about that than the wide receivers. The fact that you know Kurt Heinisch is legit, and he's definitely legit. He's definitely legit. And how about Ade Ogundeji? Like he's not even going to start, and people are like, "Watch, he's like a deal." You know what I mean? Like I just. I don't know. I love. I love it. I just. I think it's a continuation of some of the the positives that we saw in the Clemson game, uh, the positive takeaways, and, and a natural evolution of another spring in the weight room and getting the technique down, and just saying it doesn't matter if I'm the backup defensive end. I'm still gonna just get crazy. I'm just gonna ball out. You know. So I just think it, it, I, I can't remember what the exact question was. Um, it was in one of the comments on on the site. Uh, or the last couple of days, and, but I, it, it spoke to, you know, the draft or whatnot. I can't quite remember, but I, my answer was, uh, was more of a statement than an answer. And it's like, look, BK and his staff, they can identify talent. They recruit the talent and then they develop, they've been de- developing the talent. And when people are bitching up and down about certain stars, I'm telling you right now, I will take the opinion of Brian Kelly or anyone on that staff over Barton Simmons. Because if Barton Simmons was that good of a talent evaluator, he'd be coaching. He wouldn't be running. He wouldn't be on a recruiting site. Right. And I I think it speaks to the fact that this thing is not a science. There's nobody who's very good at this, just like there's nobody who's good at mock drafts, right? Right. So if Barton Simmons hits on 55% of his guys, He's legendary because he's he's like beating the odds, and, right? And, and, I, and he's still a, a just almost just better than a coin flip. Look, Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney are good recruiters. Saban's great. Dabo, right. which was kind of funny, you know, and it's been mentioned many times just in the last few months, is that you know Clemson doesn't generally finish, uh, you know, in the top five, but you know he's a gr- really good talent evaluator, and more than that. Those guys develop their guys. It, you know, it isn't just because they're recruiting top talent. They got something to work with, but they're making them into something. You know, I I just feel what Brian Kelly's doing is so similar to what those two are doing, but it just it just not it just hasn't been enough yet. And now, can you knock them all the way down to the bottom rung because of that? I mean, many people do, uh, but I I just I think. Now I have a greater appreciation for it many years into the BK era of where we're sitting at now. And it, it which is during his time frame is still a shorter time frame than the, the point between uh, Lou Holtz and the hiring of BK, right? Yeah. So what he's been able to do that time frame is, is you know, you're getting us out of, of laughter bullshit status. And 2016 was a huge blow to that, you know, to that. And I was one of many calling for his, for his job uh, because we had seen just things flounder so terribly. And, but then he, he, I had to give him credit and I'm glad I did. And I'm glad many people are for what he accomplished, what he did after that season uh, to get us to where we are now, which it re- I'm telling, it really feels like this program is on much more of a solid foundation and much more capable of turning in good season after good season after good season, 
and with the ability to get to a great season, you know, here and there, which is way more than what we've gotten over the last 25 years. Agreed. Agreed. Well, folks, I think uh, you got you got anything else to say, Jude? I was just going to say, so should we call an end to this thing? Because, yeah. I mean, we peaked at Jerry Barca and it's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you about fast guys on the on the team and the yeah. NFL draft or whatever. But it's time to call this one a, a, a good podcast and, and put the bow on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think most people probably stopped listening about 20 minutes ago. Anyways. <laughs> uh, so but uh, so. All right. Well, uh, you know, pay attention to the site. We're going to start the uh, player profiles uh, starting next week. Um, and we do think. It's funny. I saw Priester give a write a thing out today explaining what they're doing with theirs. Everyone's trying to do something a little bit different. We've all, always done ours a little, had a little goofy element to it. Uh, it might get even goofier this year. Uh, but pay attention to that as we roll hardcore into the absolute offseason. Now that the NFL draft's over, uh, the 2018-2019 cycle is done with. Uh, so, uh, but stay tuned. We're putting out put out a lot of stuff. Jude just sat down there on. ND day and was just like everybody should know everything about what's going on. Uh, I think he put out like ten articles. Uh, <laughs> so I just thought the interviews were really, really enlightening and they were, they and, were and fun. So I just I kept seeing you publish and I'm like, I had no plans of doing anything today, man. I'm like taking a <laughs> mental break. And I'm like, sweet, <laughs> good, good stuff. And then I I really caught it the next day about all that stuff and was like, man, this is good stuff. So. Appreciate you guys listening to us and uh, and bearing with us. Go see Hesburgh the movie if you don't. Hesburghfilm.com. Check for showtimes in your area. If there's not showtimes, use that contact us form or call your local theater and tell them that you want Hesburgh. It will work. Honest to God. Absolutely. Go Irish. Go Irish. <laughs>